0: Welcome, everyone, to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey, everybody. It's your girl, Wayne Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone. And your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for yourselves and everyone else all around the world. And know that by showing love to any of our fellow beings is never a waste, never in vain, but always a gain, no matter the circumstances. Because having sincere love in our hearts and minds for all God's children, not only illumines the light of our own mighty I Am presence on earth and in the kingdom of heaven, but by being more of the love that Jesus commanded of us, we are also raising our individual and collective vibration. And by increasing our light on earth now, that light that dwells within all of us, we are positively altering the structure of mankind's reality for our victory over the darkness. And indeed, an increase in love and light will expand the collective consciousness of this present generation. But an increase in our lifetime, Will lead to the highest of heights for those generations to come, for all of humanity. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life, and y'all be loved.
1: The adoration of the sun was one of the earliest and most natural forms of religious expression. Complex modern theologies are merely involvements and amplifications of this simple aboriginal belief. The primitive mind, recognizing the beneficent power of the solar orb, adored it as the proxy of the supreme deity. Concerning the origin of sun worship, Albert Pike makes the following concise statement in his Morals and Dogma. To them, aboriginal peoples, he, the sun, was the innate fire of bodies, the fire of nature. Author of life, heat, and ignition, he was to them the efficient cause of all generation, for without him there was no movement, no existence, no form. He was to them immense, indivisible, and perishable, and everywhere present. It was their need of light, and of his creative energy, that was felt by all men, and nothing was more fearful to them than his absence. His beneficent influences caused his identification with the principle of good, and the Brahma of the Hindus, and Mithras of the Persians, and Adam, Amun, Tha, and Osiris, of the Egyptians, the Bell of the Chaldeans, the Adonai of the Phoenicians, the Adonis and Apollo of the Greeks, became but personifications of the sun, the regenerating principle, image of that fecundity which perpetuates and rejuvenates the world's existence. Among all the nations of antiquity, altars, mounds, and temples were dedicated to the worship of the orb of day. The ruins of these sacred places yet remain, notable among them being the pyramids of Yucatan and Egypt, the snake mounds of the American Indians, the ziggurats of Babylon and Chaldea, the round towers of Ireland, and the massive rings of uncut stone in Britain and Normandy. The Tower of Babel, which, according to the scriptures, was built so that man might reach up to God, was probably an astronomical observatory. Many early priests and prophets, both pagan and Christian, were versed in astronomy and astrology, their writings are best understood when read in the light of these ancient sciences. With the growth of man's knowledge of the constitution and periodicity of the heavenly bodies, astronomical principles and terminology were introduced into his religious systems. The tutelary gods were given planetary thrones, the celestial bodies being named after the deities assigned to them. The fixed stars were divided into constellations, and through these constellations wandered the Sun and its planets, the latter with their accompanying satellites. The Sun, as supreme among the celestial bodies visible to the astronomers of antiquity, was assigned to the highest of the gods and became symbolic of the supreme authority of the Creator himself. From a deep philosophic consideration of the powers and principles of the Sun has come the concept of the Trinity as it is understood in the world today. The tenet of a triune divinity is not peculiar to Christian or mosaic theology, but forms a conspicuous part of the dogma of the greatest religions of both ancient and modern times. The Secret Teachings of All Ages, by Manly P. Hall, 1928 Some persons are disposed to attribute to the serpent, as a religious emblem, an origin decidedly phallic. Mr. C. S. Wake takes a contrary view and says. So far as I can make out the serpent symbol has not a direct phallic reference, nor is its attribute of wisdom the most essential. The idea most intimately associated with this animal was that of life, not present merely, but continued, and probably everlasting. Thus, the snake bay was figured as guardian of the doorways of the Egyptian tombs which represented the mansions of heaven. A sacred serpent would seem to have been kept in all the Egyptian temples, and we are told that many of the subjects, in the tombs of the kings at Thebes in particular, show the importance it was thought to enjoy in a future state. Crowns, formed of the Aspor sacred Thermothys, were given to sovereigns and divinities, particularly to Isis, and these no doubt were intended to symbolize eternal life. Isis was a goddess of life and healing and the serpent evidently belonged to her in that character, seeing that it was the symbol also of other deities with the like attributes. Thus, on papyri it encircles the figure of Harpocrates, who was identified with Isculapius, while not only was a great serpent kept alive in the great temple of Serapis, but on later monuments this god is represented by a great serpent with or without a human head. Mr. Ferguson, in accordance with his peculiar theory as to the origin of serpent worship, thinks this superstition characterized the old Turanian, or rather let us say Akkadian, empire of Chaldea, while tree-worship was more characteristic of the later Assyrian Empire. This opinion is no doubt correct, and it means really that the older race had that form of faith with which the serpent was always indirectly connected, adoration of the male principle of generation, the principal phase of which was probably ancestor-worship, while the latter race adored the female principle, symbolized by the sacred tree, the Assyrian grove. The tree of life, however, undoubtedly had reference to the male element, and we may well imagine that originally the fruit alone was treated as symbolical of the opposite element. Ophiolatria, Anonymous, 1889
0: Isis and Bel, Volume 2, Chapter 3
1: another hypothesis possible, which is that Zero Ishtar was the high priest of the Chaldean worship, or Magian Hierophant. When the Aryans of Persia, under Darius Hestaspes, overthrew the Magian gamates and restored the Mastian worship, there ensued an amalgamation by which the Magian Zoroastar became the Zaratushra of the Vendidad. This was not acceptable to the other Aryans, who adopted the Vedic religion as distinguished from that of Avesta. But this is but a hypothesis. And whatever Moses is now believed to have been, we will demonstrate that he was an initiate. The Mosaic religion was at best a sun and serpent worship, diluted, perhaps, with some slight monotheistic notions before the latter were forcibly crammed into the so-called inspired scriptures by Ezra, at the time he was alleged to have rewritten the Mosaic books. At all events, the Book of Numbers was a later book, and there the sun and serpent worship is as plainly traceable as in any pagan story. The tale of the fiery serpents is an allegory in more than one sense. The serpents were the Levites or Ephites, who were Moses' bodyguard, see Exodus 32 26, and the command of the Lord to Moses to hang the heads of the people before the Lord against the sun, which is the emblem of this Lord, is unequivocal. The Nazars or prophets, as well as the Nazarenes, were an anti-Bacchus caste, insofar that, in common with all the initiated prophets, They held to the spirit of the symbolical religions and offered a strong opposition to the idolatrous and exoteric practices of the dead letter. Hence, the frequent stoning of the prophets by the populace and under the leadership of those priests who made a profitable living out of the popular superstitions. Muller shows how much the Orphic mysteries differed from the popular rites of Bacchus, although the Orphicoi are known to have followed the worship of Bacchus. The system of the purest morality and the severe asceticism promulgated in the teachings of Orpheus, and so strictly adhered to by his votaries, are incompatible with the lasciviousness and gross immorality of the popular rites. The fable of Aristius pursuing Eurydice into the woods where a serpent occasions her death, is a very plain allegory, which was in part explained at the earliest times. Aristius's brutal power, pursuing Eurydice, the esoteric doctrine, Into the woods where the serpent, emblem of every sun god, and worshipped under its grosser aspect even by the Jews, kills her, i.e., forces truth to become still more esoteric, and seek shelter in the underworld, which is not the hell of our theologians. Moreover, the fate of Orpheus, torn to pieces by the bacchants, is another allegory to show that the gross and popular rites are always more welcome than divine but simple truth, and proves the greater difference that must have existed between the esoteric and the popular worship. H. P. Blavatsky As the poems of both Orpheus and Messias were said to have been lost since the earliest ages, so that neither Plato nor Aristotle recognized anything authentic in the poems extant in their time, it is difficult to say with precision what constituted their peculiar rites. Still, we have the oral tradition, and every inference to draw therefrom, and this tradition points to Orpheus as having brought his doctrines from India. As one whose religion was that of the oldest Magians, hence, that to which belonged the initiates of all countries, beginning with Moses, the sons of the prophets, and the ascetic Nazars, who must not be confounded with those against whom thundered Hosea and other prophets, to the Essenes. This latter sect were Pythagoreans before they rather degenerated, then became perfected in their system by the Buddhist missionaries, whom Pliny tells us established themselves on the shores of the Dead Sea, ages before his time, per cyclorum milia. But if, on the one hand, these Buddhist monks were the first to establish monastic communities and inculcate the strict observance of dogmatic conventual rule on the other, they were also the first to enforce and popularize those stern virtues so exemplified by Shakyamuni, and which were previously exercised only in isolated cases of well-known philosophers and their followers, virtues preached two or three centuries later by Jesus, practiced by a few Christian ascetics, and gradually abandoned, and even entirely forgotten by the Christian Church. The initiated Nazars had ever held to this rule, which had to be followed before them by the adepts of every age, and the disciples of John were but a dissenting branch of the Essenes. Therefore, we cannot well confound them with all the Nazars spoken of in the Old Testament, and who are accused by Hosea with having separated or consecrated themselves to Bosheth, see Hebrew text, which implied the greatest possible abomination. To infer, as some critics and theologians do, that it means to separate oneself to chastity or continence, is either to advisedly pervert the true meaning, or to be totally ignorant of the Hebrew language. The eleventh verse of the first chapter of Micah half explains the word in its failed translation, Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, etc., and in the original text the word is bosheth. Certainly, neither Baal, nor Kadosh, with his kachim, was a god of ascetic virtue, albeit the Septuaginta terms them, as well as the galley, the perfected priests, the initiated and the consecrated. The great sod of the Kachem, translated in Psalm 89 7, by assembly of the saints, was anything but a mystery of the sanctified, in the sense given to the latter word by Webster. H. P. Blavatsky And now, since there are great groups of the angelic host directed by cosmic beings abiding above every nation in the world, seeking always to bring forth perfection wherever possible, mankind needs to understand the constant effort life makes to bring help that raises all life out of mankind's frightful, human creation. So, blessed ones, we are very grateful for the recognition you give us. And while all mankind has within it, existing within life naturally, some awareness of the angelic host, yet individuals are not taught to call the angelic host, by which close association can take place in the daily life of the people everywhere. Of course, I have been portrayed in many ways, and I admit my cosmic sort of blue flame has been quite busy in answering the calls that have come to me. But there are legions who wield the sword of blue flame and draw other activities of the sacred fire and could come to help all mankind be released, if the people would awaken and place the attention of the outer self, with love and the feelings, upon the angelic host. I assure you, you have no concept of the power of the sacred fire that the angelic hosts direct and by which they are surrounded. So, in coming to your assistance tonight, it is with the hope that I may charge in and around you the angelic hosts' world of the sacred fire. Love predominates as the Cosmic Christ control, and I assure you, the world in which the angelic host abide is magnificent beyond description. Therefore, I want your world, your individual world, to now be filled with the sacred fire of the world of the angelic host. And if you will accept this and remember it often enough to love it, I assure you, the action of the great central sun magnet will draw it into your outer use, will enfold you in its magnificent perfection, and the veils between you and the angelic host will have disappeared. So let us consume the veils tonight. Applause. Thank you, precious ones. Beloved Archangel Michael. You know, many times when you've been in a warm room where the air is not too fresh and you step outdoors into the sunshine and the fresh air, you know how wonderful you feel and you wonder why you didn't go out sooner. Well, we wonder too why mankind doesn't come laughter into our world sooner. And I assure you, as you begin to love the angelic host, ask for their presence with you, command that everything in you and your world dwell within the world, the sacred fire world of the angelic host, you will have that same feeling of refreshing atmosphere and exhilaration that you have when you step out into a bright sunshine day with a clear atmosphere, with a breeze blowing, and you feel so good to get out and exercise in that fresh air. I assure you, my loved ones, your mental and feeling world will feel that same refreshing exhilaration as you remember to demand everything in your being and world now be sealed within the sacred fire world of the angelic host, wherein at all times you may receive the strength, the refreshing exhilaration that the sacred fire alone can give. And if you love to live in that world, you will not forget it. If you decide to live within it, and remember to call it in and around yourselves, you will find the angelic host abiding with you in that world. And I think that's very great wisdom at this time. Applause. Thank you so much. Now for the protection of your loved ones, all that you hold near and dear, whether it be individuals or things or conditions of the love and the light that is your power to become free, charge always the world of the sacred fire in and around all that you want to bless. And then ask legions of the angelic host to hold their sacred fire protection about that which you wish to send as a blessing, and around all that you hold near and dear to accomplish the fulfillment of the the great divine plan. Now if I were you, I would apply this to the nation as well as to your own individual worlds. And if you call for the cosmic legions of invincible victory and eternal protection to protect the God-instruments of your country that guarantee you freedom, the God-blessings within your borders that give you always the perfection of God, then limitless legions of the angelic hosts' invincible power of the sacred fire and cosmic Christ illumination, can come within the land and within the people until they are aroused to the point where they turn Godward and make conscious effort to reach up to the greater perfection of life and receive the blessing by which they may have eternal freedom. Beloved Archangel Michael,